Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 125 of Energy Talks, and I'm we're going to be talking to Dr. Gregory Nemet, who's a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's La Follette School of Public Affairs about technology and the energy transition, technology change in the energy transition, and astute listeners will know that back in episode 73, back in August, I talked to him about this issue again, but so much has changed since then. And before we get into that, just a, a quick note, um, you probably uh, are doing the math and realize that uh, 52 episodes have been posted in the last five months. And I wanted to explain that Energy Talks is not a show in the way that most podcasts are. At Energy Media, we think about the podcast as long-form journalism. So when I want to have uh, a short conversation, do a news story about something, we do a, a seven to 10 minute video interview with an expert. And when we want to really get into it, uh, you know, have an hour long conversation, we do it with the podcast. And so you might have, you know, three podcasts released on one day because we, we did three podcasts on one day. And, and we want you to get that information as quickly as we can. It's not a show. Uh, it's long-form journalism, and we're one of the few podcasts that do that. So with that uh, uh, caveat, uh, Greg, welcome to uh, back to Energy Talks. Yeah, great. Thanks, Mark. Good to be back. Well, look, this is exciting times. It's only been five months since I talked to you, but a few days after we talked, uh, President Joe Biden introduced the uh, U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, and man, it's a different world. The yeah. the, uh, the The... Uh, energy world, the energy, basically the, here's the, here's the hypothesis. We'll get, maybe we'll start the interview off with this and get you to respond to the hypothesis, which is the accelerating energy transition. It's been going on for 30 or 40 years, accelerating slowly over time. Then in the last, say five, six years really got going. Plus the shock of the COVID-19 pandemic, plus the energy shock of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine has triggered an economic transformation as nations rush to build clean energy industry and supply chains. Listeners will know, um, I've talked to other experts about this, but I'm really interested, what's your take on it? I mean, all of those things are happening. And I think, you know, one thing that people were seeing over the last couple of decades is, wow, these technologies have gone from something that uh, were trivial and interesting, but not serious because energy problems are big and climate's big and the world economy's big and little technologies like wind and solar panels aren't really up for it. Um, but clearly now they are. And that's really been, yeah, bolstered in the last few years. Um, just when you might've thought that this initial phase of rapid growth from through the 2000s into the 20 teens was maybe kind of slowing down because the technology is maturing and 
things generally slow down as they mature, but they haven't slowed down. They've accelerated and are adding more and more because of these additional drivers that have countries thinking that they don't want to rely on fossil fuels because they're unreliable, they're dirty, and at times they're expensive and they're volatile. And you can mitigate a lot of those shocks and a lot of the geopolitical issues by sourcing uh, renewable energy. And that's really driven things. And then the developments in batteries over the last five years have expanded the transition so that it's not just about electricity, but it's about transportation. Yeah, I want to talk to you about batteries and we'll get to that. Um, just last week, the International Energy Agency released the Energy Technology Perspectives 2023, which was a bit of a uh, game changer in terms of how we see this. And I want to I want to read you two quotes. This one is uh, an IEA quote from 2021. And here it is. A new energy economy is emerging around the world as solar, wind, electric vehicles, and other low carbon technologies flourish. So now we're talking about source of energy, primary energy, and the and the uh, technologies that that consume it. Here is a, a line from the energy technology perspectives of of last week. That new energy economy is quote changing the industries that supply the materials and products underpinning the energy system, heralding the dawn of a new industrial age, the age of clean energy technology manufacturing. And I think that one sentence sums up what you just said, what we were talking about, as well as, as it can be summed up. But if we're talking a new industrial age, like you know the next stage of the industrial revolution, that language is a clue to how profound uh, changes are that are going on. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is as big as going from wood as the main energy carrier 200 years ago to using coal, and that created the Industrial Revolution, and then oil creating this transportation and globalized economy. So now we've got something that's clean, that's cheap, that's reliable, and these clean energy technologies. And yeah, it changes things. A few things things it changes one it changes where energy is available so sunny and windy places start to be really appealing for doing activities like energy intensive manufacturing it changes the resources that we care about it's not so much about oil and gas and where those are but it's about where lithium and maybe cobalt and copper are found and where we can make use of those and you know all the manufacturing of making wind turbines and making electric vehicles and where that happens um is up for grabs in a lot of a lot of ways and so that's an important development but that's yeah it's a fundamental change that could reorient where a lot of economic activity occurs but also could have tremendous benefits for human health and air quality and climate as well well let's talk about the u.s inflation reduction act and the way i've been framing it greg is that the Essentially, uh, China is way out in front of uh, every other region, uh, Asia Pacific, really, because, of course, we can't uh, count out Japan and, and South Korea. But if we think of Asia Pacific as being way ahead in terms of clean energy technology manufacturing, and I think arguably Europe maybe comes in second and North America comes in third. Now, that includes the United States, the biggest economy in the world. And and I and I'm. I love to quote a line from uh, Biden's 2020 campaign material where he admits that the U.S. is no longer number one, probably not even number two, maybe 
barely hanging on to the, the number three position by its fingertips. And he pledges, of course, to get America back to number one by 2030 in these you know key industries like EVs and, and batteries. And it was, to me, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is like a declaration of economic war. It's like, we're not number one anymore, but by God, we are going to be, we're going to get back to that. And here we come, China, here we come, Europe, and let her rip. And is that a fair reading of, of that act? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it has to be quite as zero sum as that. I don't think that we're trying to beat China. I mean, maybe in some ways, but I don't see it that way. I just see, we need a tremendous amount of clean energy available and if we're going to depend on China for it, we're going to have to probably make compromises that we don't want to make in a lot of different ways. And so if we can be self-sufficient in making electric vehicles or solar panels, it opens up a lot of possibility, not just in clean energy, but in other areas as well. So I'm not I don't think we're talking about the U.S. trying to be number one in making solar panels. It's more about making this transition sustainable uh, means that it needs to have political support and it'll have a lot more political support if it's seen as something that's domestic, that creates jobs, that creates industries in the U.S., and same for Canada and same for countries in Europe. Um, and so that's what makes it sustainable is if you have local production. I would say the same thing about the growing places like Nigeria and India, which are also developing their own uh, national competencies in clean energy manufacturing. So, yeah, it's crucial. And to make this transition happen, we have to go big and we have to keep at it for decades. And you need to have political support. And political support comes from domestically saying this is a win for us this is good for us we're not just going to be customers of the place that can make it the cheapest so yeah it's been a big change that way you know the political sport is really critical and i and i say that because um i'm writing a column about a political spat going on in alberta so canada's uh, version of texas the epicenter of canada's oil and gas industry over you know accusations that the federal government is trying to shut down the in industry to lower emissions. It's a, it's a, it's a silly, silly spat because they're in election silly season right now. And, and this is the way it goes, right. You know, four months before an election, but here's the, th the thing that I think is the, at the, the, the bottom, the foundation for the, this change is that there is a fundamental difference between energy as a commodity and energy as a technology. They yeah. behave very differently. And yeah. so if you're talking oil and gas, uh, uh, so it's a commodity, it gets traded, it goes up and down. You've got your, your efficiencies in, your, in the way you consume it, like an internal combustion engine are fixed. Your energy density is fixed. But, but when it becomes energy becomes a technology like wind and solar and batteries, then those are not fixed anymore. And efficiencies yeah. can fall. And costs can fall over time. So I'd like to get your take on the difference between energy as a commodity and energy as a technology. Yeah. I mean, so I would say at least two things. So first of all, um, you know, the prices of fossil fuels go up and down. But generally, they're on an upward uh, slope in pricing as we start to run out or have to move to more difficult places to extract it, like tar sands or Arctic or deep water offshore. And so that's a trajectory for fossil fuels that, you know, eventually we have to you know, reconcile with. Whereas that's not true with these technology-based energy sources like wind and solar and electric vehicles. And it's pretty clear now after 20 years or 30 years of 
solar and wind cost reductions as they keep getting cheaper. And same with electric vehicles as well, because it's really know-how based. It's how do you put the layers of a battery together at super large scale quickly with automation and integrated supply chains. And as you do that better and better, the costs go down. So that's one aspect of the difference between a commodity and technology is you can get better and cheaper over time. The other part about it is the interruptibility. I mean, one of the issues that we care about with fossil fuels is what we've seen coming from the Middle East in the 1970s or in coming from Russia in 2022, is that if you cut people off and say, we won't sell you our fossil fuels, it can be extremely disruptive and you can extract a lot of geopolitical concessions on that. Whereas if you say, we're not going to sell you any solar panels or wind turbines, that has a much more muted effect because all the solar panels and wind turbines you already have are completely unaffected by that. They don't need fuel. They don't need continuous supply. And all you're doing is affecting the growth. But if you start to develop domestic manufacturing, like we were talking about a few minutes ago, then you really mute the possibility that there can be any disruption. And so where you have to start to look at is, well, are there commodities that are important for batteries or solar panels? And there are, and things like copper and lithium have been important, but those have time to develop as well. So there's a lot more slack in the system to deal with disruptions when it's a technology-based energy system versus a commodity-based one where we've seen the effect of disruptions. And, and they're really fundamental, and that's something we can get away, away from with a more technology-focused energy system. And there's a you mentioned the the fact that some of these technology or all of these technologies are falling in costs. And, and that leads to a discussion of what's known as rights law. And I forget the first name of the engineer, uh, Mr. We'll call him Mr. Wright, yeah. uh, who worked, worked for McConnell Douglas in the 1930s. He was an, uh, uh, so, you know, they were making airplanes and he noticed he did the, the analysis and, and realized that every time they doubled the manufacturing of, uh, the plane of planes that labor costs fell 20% every time. And it was like a law. And so that then over time, other scholars took this up and applied it to other industries and it became known as learning curves. Just as you said, we, you know, the, the, the more we do it, the better we get at it kind of thing. And, yeah. and the general uh, assumption is that every time you double the production of one of these energy technologies, overall production costs fall an average of 15 to 25%. And it seems, I don't know if there's a limit to that, like there is a Moore's law on the, on the computer side, but we don't seem to be anywhere close to it. And we still seem to be, you know, when, if we double solar, then the cost of solar panels will, will continue to fall. But what's your yeah. take on that? It's been a robust finding. I mean, I've been working on understanding that for solar for the last 15 years. And every time I've been showing data, people say, well, yeah, eventually uh, we're going to hit the wall on that. So we're going to have to figure out something else. Like we won't keep reducing cost. But also people have been saying that about uh, Moore's law and semiconductors for computers for the last 20 years. We're going to need to shift to quantum computing or something like that. But the incremental gains from continuing to innovate and find with microprocessors, you know, smaller and smaller architectures, with solar panels, it's introducing auto automation with electric vehicles. It's increasing the energy density of the batteries. And there's a bunch of other factors that we can improve as we move along as well. And we haven't even really switched to different materials for solar or for electric vehicle batteries. So, yeah, I'm really optimistic that we just continue along the way. 
there are perturbations. There's times when the prices go up for a few years. That happened to solar in 2006, seven and eight. People said, oh, it's the end of the learning curve, but it was a supply chain constraint. And as with any other industry, once prices start going up and the cost of silicon went way up, people invest in supplying that material because it becomes super profitable. And then that creates this opportunity to really get the cost down. And that's what happened with solar panels. And I think that's what's happening with uh, lithium supply and copper and other things for electric vehicles right now as some of the prices have gone up and the batteries prices have gone up by say 10, 15% in the last year or so. Um, it's setting the, the platform to really uh, have a new generation of prices go down uh, as we expand the capability to produce um, these important materials for them. You can read about this later in uh, energy media, Greg, but uh, a company that we've interviewed many times, uh, Summit Nanotech out of Calgary, was a startup a few years ago from a, a, an oil and gas geophysicist. And she has done amazing work developing technology that will strip lithium out of briny water. So no more mining it. You just run the, the water through the, her technology and, and, you, and you get lithium. And they, they just today announced that they received $50 million U.S. from a, from a uh, I think it's a European uh, venture capital fund to scale up. To begin scale to begin scaling up, and it, and right. and her company is not the only one in in this space. And this yeah. gets us back to innovation. You know, we we keep we keep having these conversations about oh my god, you know, lithium is going to be limited because we can only mine it. So, well, yeah. who says that's the only way to get lithium out? You know, yeah, to increase our lithium supply. And and I the amount of innovation that's going on in the global energy space is simply mind blowing. It's, you know, all those decades of science and all those decades of clever engineers working on away at batteries and lithium, you know, extraction and so on are finally bearing fruit in the 2020s, which is why I, I argue that the 2020s, if you think of the S-curve, you know, the adoption S-curve and that flat part of it, you know, that's the first 30, 40 years. And then yeah. those technologies hit the inflection point and begin to take off. And there's a, there's a, just for sake of argument, a decade, the yeah. disruptive decade, and it's the 2020s. I don't think there's any question now that that is the case. And when we get on the other side of that, the 2030s, what we're going to see is some of those technologies will be really well established. I mean, they will be, be the, the or close to being the dominant technology in, in their space, you know, like wind and solar for, for power generation. And yeah. so this the the uh, uh, importance the importance of seizing the moment now before other you know there aren't other opportunities is really important but the question becomes do like say North America U.S. Inflation Reduction Act uh, we want to produce uh, electric vehicles in North America we want to have our own battery manufacturing plants and supply chains and the question has been asked uh, in some pieces that I've read. Uh, should the U.S., because it's such an innovation machine, because of its R&D and science uh, work that it undertakes, should it compete head-to-head -head with today's technology with China, or should it be looking ahead and saying, what's the next generation of batteries? What's yeah. the next generation of you know uh, uh, power generation? You know, maybe it's geothermal. Yeah, that is even you know better than so. What's your take on that? Should we leap ahead or compete head-to-head -head with? With what the, what the technology we have now? 
Oh, that's such a great question. And it's, you know, you can, there's strong arguments on both sides of it. So the strong argument to say, yeah, we shouldn't try to beat China at their own game, which is slicing silicon wafers really thin. Yeah, we should like use the advanced technologies that don't require as much labor costs that we can have a comparative advantage on and beat them at that. And so there's an argument to do that with batteries, do that with solar, heat pumps, other technologies that emerge, just go high tech. Um, the other side of that is that if you look at the history, say for solar, companies and countries that have tried to do that, like Japan did that in the early 2000s, Germany did that in the late 2000s, uh, got beat by this old technology that China just optimized and got better and better and better at it. And so it's a classic dilemma, and it's certainly coming through with electric vehicles, with lithium-ion batteries have so much scale that something new has got to give you something that's really better. Like it doesn't use any cobalt or maybe it doesn't use any lithium. And also that someone or government or company or some combination has got to kind of pay down its own learning curve because that's going to start much more expensive than lithium ion. And it's going to take a while to get those 20% every doubling reductions. Maybe it's 30% for batteries, but someone's got to get there um, to get up to scale. And so that's the challenge. You have to go really go big with one of these things. Because if you go small, you're just going to have to find niches where it works and the, the China technology doesn't work, uh, or or you just have to kind of, uh, or, you know, bet on the old technology. So yeah, it's a good challenge. Greg, I want to talk to you about batteries, innovation in the battery space, because of all of the different aspects of the energy system that, uh, and the clean energy system that that we cover here at Energy Media, I don't think there's another one that where there is as much innovation as in battery technology and energy storage writ large, really, if you want to look at it that way. And the way this, the battery world appears to be shape, shaping up is Lithium ion will drive the transportation sector. I, I think that's pretty clear for a long time. We'll see some iterations, uh, some improvements like solid state and different materials and anodes, that, that sort of thing. But there are so many different chemistries and types of batteries that are either right on the cusp of being introduced uh, or soon will be in the next five years. And I'm thinking of zinc ion, uh, iron ion. Uh, I mean, there's just on and on. And it looks like lithium ion dom dominates in transportation. And then these other chemistries find their niches in the market. And they perform really valuable services at the utility scale, uh, for stationary storage, in in for uh, in people's garages for home storage, um, business store energy storage, on and on and on and on. Is that a fair way to look at this? And what do you think about innovation and and learning curves in the battery space? Yeah, the first thing I'd say is just how transformational this whole discussion of storage is that you just summarized. Like you know, I teach a class on energy systems and. Uh, five, 10 years ago, I would just spend like half a class over a whole semester on energy storage, which basically is like, it would be great if we could store energy because all of the regulation and the issues and the electrical engineering we have in our energy system is based on this issue that you can't store electricity. So that's the problem. And we do have 
ways we've tried to store and it's just too expensive. And so we're stuck with markets that have to deal with price caps, all of which is based on not being able to store energy. And that also all of transportation is based on fossil fuels because we can't access all these different ways we have to make electricity. Yeah. And that's been completely transformed in the last 10 years, mostly because of lithium ion batteries becoming much cheaper and allowing us to drive cars that are based on uh, lithium ion batteries and start to think about the grid using batteries as well. And it, the other thing I'd say is it's a bi-directional causation here. So because we have batteries, we can now electrify transportation. And because we have batteries, we can start to do a lot more renewables on the grid. But because there are these transformational uh, innovations in renewables like cheap wind, offshore wind, and cheap solar, the demand for batteries has just become really gigantic too. And so the investments in these different types of chemistries that you're talking about, scaling up manufacturing, developing automation, all the things that have been really useful for solar becoming really inexpensive are happening with batteries too. And I think what the two things that make me optimistic that these cost reductions will just keep continuing is one, it's a lot of the same factors we've seen in solar. It's automation, small scale, lots of different applications that you talked about and finding ways to make incremental cost reductions. And then two, we've got these multiple chemistries. There's only one way to hold a charge and to reverse that uh, charge. There's many different ways. And that and this all this innovation that's happening that you mentioned, uh, yeah, makes me optimistic that this learning curve for batteries continues. And that you know opens up a lot of things. Like for example, just the last thing I'd say on batteries, $40,000 for a battery pack in a Nissan Leaf 10 years ago. Now it's 4,000, just transformational. Earlier in the interview, we talked about the approach to innovation between China and the US. So China now on batteries is absolutely dominant and it, it controls, you know, 75, 80% of the supply chain around lithium ion batteries. And so the question is, uh, I guess, you know, North North America is going to have to build a lithium-ion battery industry and the supply chains, uh, if we're going to have a, an auto an electric vehicle manufacturing sector here. But the other side of this is the a competitive advantage that the U.S. has over every other economy in the world is, is innovation. That is the thing that the U.S. excels at. And so it's should the government and industry put as you know a lot of emphasis on catching up to China or more emphasis on on innovation getting out in in front of China in the in the technology in the battery uh, technologies and other energy storage technologies that are coming and and dominate that way, take the lead that way. What's your take on that? Um, so I think the U.S. has two big distinct advantages. One is this innovation ecosystem that you mentioned. The second is the size of the market. It really is different. I mean, there's a, more people in China and India. But if you add up you know, GDP and how many people are driving cars, U.S. is gigantic. So it's got those two advantages. It's got the supply side on the technology and the demand side on the market. So that gives the U.S. some possibilities. Uh, and then second... Yeah, I, I think it's maybe we don't want to go head to head with China on trying to beat them at their own game. 
But there is this other part of it. We don't want to get too far ahead of where the technology is because that's been one of the lessons from solar is that companies and countries that kept trying to out-innovate what the previous leader was doing got too far ahead and ended up with technologies that didn't work as well as the old-fashioned uh, crystallized silicon because it couldn't get as cheap. And so if the U.S. is going to work on advanced technologies, um, there's got to be clear advantages for the users or some clear pathway of cost reductions that's better than lithium ion, because otherwise uh, it'll end up playing in niche markets, which could be interesting and could make really valuable companies from working in niche markets, but it's not uh, a way to counter China or to have a real healthy domestic industry of the same scale. So there's a mix between trying to get ahead on the advanced technologies, but not completely giving up um, what's now just gigantic scale and, and is really becoming more and more affordable. And we'll be, take a while to dislodge. We're, we're seeing a lot of discussion about the U.S. government's role in this process. And I wonder what you think of how the approach that that uh, the Biden administration is taking and, and the, the uh, uh, government is taking in terms of the rollout uh, Jigger Shaw is is very well known in the in the energy technology space. He's heading up the uh, Department of Energy's uh, their loan program, uh, which will be immensely influential. And it seems to me that there are some really bright people in charge of this. And I know have no doubt that they're having these kinds of conversations, you know, around the water cooler in Washington. Are you optimistic that the the you know the U.S. public sector is is going to do a good job of rolling out its part of uh, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and and the whole you know re reformation of the of the innovation uh, ecosystem around clean energy technologies like batteries? I am I am optimistic that they will one because they've got great people as you mentioned two I think we've learned a lot from what's happened before with some of these efforts that didn't pan out that well, including in the Obama administration, but other in other countries and earlier than that. And three, it really is this more comprehensive support of innovation that has really, they're putting money where these ideas were. The ideas were saying it's not enough to just fund research and development like that. Going back to, you know, the Reagan administration, the 1980s and cutting the solar and wind budgets, the idea was the U.S. government should only do R&D Everything else is up to the private sector. And now we've realized that the big successes have come out of places like Germany, Japan, and China. We're using much more different types of policies and support. And so we're seeing that now. And so I think I'm, that makes me optimistic that it's not just about research and development. That's there, but also demonstration projects, this loan program office you're talking about, creating markets, and also supporting local domestic U.S. manufacturing with you know 65 to $70 billion of tax credits on that. That's actually leading to uh, developments and groundbreakings in clean energy and, and also in, in semiconductors as well. So yeah, I am optimistic because it's is more than just um, talking about it or trying a few different things. This is going all in on the project. The one risk I think is that we have uh, another Solyndra, uh, which we want to have. Like that's the plan. We're going to do lots of different technologies that we support and they're going to get more than R&D and they're going to get levels of funding like we saw with the $300 million that went to Solyndra. And so we're going to need to do a lot of those things and 
by intention, some of those things are not going to work out. If they all work out, then we are being way too risk averse and we're not taking a chance on, on high impact, big wins. And so those are going to happen. And how does the administration, how does the communication deal with the failures of large investments from loan program office or the manufacturing credits? And I think there's some lessons from Solyndra about how to message that, talking about a portfolio, saying this is what Silicon Valley does. This is what people in the stock market do. They invest in a portfolio and not everything works out. And that's what we want. Um, but that's going to be important because that is a liability. And for sure, we're going to have some high profile failures. Mariana Mazzucato, the uh, very well-known uh, economist, uh, has some ideas on that. And she talks about how the actual failure rate for government-supported uh, firms like Solyndra is pretty small. It's about, a th the, the, apparently, the, the, the loss rate is about 3% uh, mm -hmm. on the government loans, which is roughly, you know, what the private sector would, would experience. So it's not out of... It's it, but when they fail, they get a lot of attention. Uh, yeah. And what she says, uh, what she proposes, she said, "Look, if you're going to put government money in and uh, take a royalty fee, so that if it succeeds, you there's some money back to the government, and then that money can be put back into the pot. And the message to the public is, hey, look, we put in some money, and we're going to lose some, but we're going to win a lot more." And and that money will then go back into creating jobs and 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 new, creating new companies. And it seems to me that not only is it smart policy, but it's smart messaging as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Because then you can say, here's the value of our portfolio and it's grown. And it doesn't matter that a few things were or we had 3% loss rate or whatever it is, because overall, the winners, the Teslas that the U.S. government supported 10 years ago, far outweigh the losses that came from things like uh, Solyndra. So I think that is a good way to go. The tricky thing, though, is that uh, the U.S. government then has a financial stake in these companies, and it starts to sound like, you know, this is a national company or that there's a um, this is a national champion that the U.S. picked this particular company and didn't leave it to the market. And so that's going to take some messaging, uh, too, because I think from just a purely financial side, that makes a lot of sense. But there's also the side when you own part of a company, you have a say in how it's run. And having the government have a seat at the uh, the board table instead of just uh, private investors is is a pretty different uh, situation than the U.S. has had before. It's not different than other countries have done, uh, but it's something that would take some uh, careful uh, messaging and and design and and uh, and limits on as well. Right. I think Mazzucato's idea is that the technology would or the IP. Uh, the intellectual property would be licensed. So in fact, there wouldn't be a board. Now I'm in the yeah. offer, uh, the awkward position of arguing the other side because uh, uh, full disclosure, I was uh, uh, the lead writer on the Alberta Federation of Labor's uh, recent uh, energy strategy uh, report for Alberta. And we argued for Mazzucato's idea of an uh, a, uh, entrepreneurial state Harkening back to Peter Lougheed, Premier Peter Lougheed in the 70s and 80s, which probably means nothing to you, Greg. But oh no, he, I follow those debates for sure. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. And, yeah. and and basically that the government should take equity if it puts if it puts up money, it should take equity. It yeah. should have a, a a seat at the table. But of course, that has to be you know guided by very clear guidelines and very clear messaging to avoid the problems that that you're talking about. Yeah. Anyway, we di we digressed. Um, and I, I want to wrap up this thought with, uh, 
your take on the IEA's Energy Technology Perspectives 2023 report that was released last week, uh, it seems like a seminal report. Uh, it says, you know, the first time that that we are now seeing the emergence of a clean energy industry boom around the world. Uh, this is going to change economies. It's going to change supply chains. And any, you know, particular ideas from that report that that stuck out for you? Yeah, I mean, the message is really get ready. It's It's not so much a message of climate change and energy issues are really important. We need to get serious about them. That's been the messaging for several years. But now there's so much momentum behind that. It's more like get ready because manufacturing might move to different places based on where energy becomes available or the value of fossil fuel assets could change pretty dramatically and that will change geopolitics as well. So yeah, I think that's kind of the messaging. It's also important to realize that the IEA has really come a long way, especially in the last three or four years from, you know, it was set up in 1970s as a response to OPEC and the oil embargoes in 1973 to say, okay, let's have an organization for oil importing countries. And that's what IEA is about. How do we save energy? How do we all agree to have 90 days of supply on hand? And so it was all about protecting our fossil fuel supply and economies. And in the last three or four years, it's really started to say, you know, there's this trends in renewables and clean energy that have a momentum of their own and they're beating fossil fuels without subsidies in more and more places. And every year that report comes out, it's more and more feasible that we go to large shares of renewables. So, and so now it's really about, okay, what are the impacts of all of these changes happening? It's not, this might happen someday or we need policies to take advantage of it. That It's already happening. So yeah, it's been a real, a real change. And I give the IEA a lot of credit for just the institutional changes that have gone from, you know, it's paid for by its members, the OECD countries, to start to talking about this energy transition happening and not just about protecting its fossil fuel uh, access. Well, Greg, this has been fascinating. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation. And I'm going to come back to you, no doubt, in the, later on in the year, you know, to follow up on some of these issues. This is a exciting time to be in energy journalism, I have to tell you, uh, as we watch economies be transformed, the energy, global energy system be transformed uh, almost in real time, it feels like uh, sometimes. But anyway, thank you very much for this. Thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, for the same thing, I feel like I'm always on my toes with teaching and research. There's so much changing, so it's an exciting time. Mm -hmm.